All right, good morning. If you want to go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 2, that's where we'll get started this morning. Revelation chapter 2. Before we get started, I want to tell you something that I found out yesterday. This is just, uh, well, we'll talk about that in a second. But here we go. So I was looking through, we have a newcomers meeting this afternoon. By the way, if you're planning on coming to the newcomers meeting, let me know. Um, and uh, we will get it set up. It's going to be at about 2.15 to 2.30 this afternoon in the Annex. If you're new to Warm Springs Road, let me know, and uh, we'll get you plugged into that. Now, that being said, last night I was doing some research. I just, I don't know why, but I got a little spur in me to, to look up the history, some of the history of the congregation that I might not know. And so I took our list of 10 preachers. You may not have known that, but over the 77 years that Warm Springs Road has been in existence from Waverly Avenue to Jordan City and then to Warm Springs Road, we have had uh, 10 full-time preachers. It's a pretty good number, by the way. Usually uh, it works out to about three years each, so we're doing pretty good at seven, uh, at 10 years each. But anyways, seven years each. Anyways, um, so I went and I found my old list of all the preachers that have preached here. The first preacher was named Aris Benson. Probably never heard of that name. By the way, uh, men, if, if you can go home and check out your libraries, if you have the sermon outline books by Brother Benson, please let me know. Uh, you tell me a price and I'll pay for them. Anyway, so first preacher here was Aris Benson. He was 19 years old when he came to Warm Spring, Waverly Avenue. Um. And I found some of his family members and talked to them last night and so forth. But here's the interesting thing that I found that, that really blew my mind last night. Eris Benson was 19 years old when he went to Waverly Avenue Church of Christ, downtown Columbus, Georgia. He was from Tallahassee, Alabama. Now, he preached here for about eight years. And when he left, he left to go be an English and Bible professor at the Alabama School of Religion. And then at Alabama Christian, which then turned into Faulkner University and Ambridge University. Ambridge is the university that Wesley just graduated. Our missionary just graduated from the school that Eris Benson taught at. Now, that being said, back in the day when I was in school, my favorite teacher was Curtis Cates. Uh, Brother Cates put an indelible mark on me that will never go away. That's what indelible means, by the way. But anyways, so um, I remembered that name from somewhere, and I couldn't figure out where it was. The first preacher of the Waverly Avenue Church of Christ was the English professor and Bible professor of my favorite instructor that I have ever had in my entire life. And then my second favorite instructor that I've ever had in my entire life. It's just interesting to me that... The church is so interconnected and that the, a, a young man, 19 years old, moves from Tallahassee, no real preaching experience to speak of, to, to preach for, as the first full-time preacher of a new congregation that had only been around for about five years or so at that time. And then he goes on to be one of the formative teachers and one of my formative teachers. Anyways... I told you that story to tell you this. So last night, I decided I was going to look up some history of the Warm Springs Road Church of Christ. 
And it was really only to fill about five minutes of the newcomers meeting this afternoon. I needed some more material. And so I thought, hey, we can go over a little bit of the history since we're 77 years old at this congregation. Not all of us, but some of us. And the church is 77 years old here. So I was motivated. But then I found Eris Benson's history where he taught. And I thought, wait a second, that would have been around the same time that, that Brother Cates was at Alabama School of Religion. And so I Googled the two, and I came across two papers that Curtis Cates wrote that talked about how influential Brother Benson was in his preaching. And I thought, well, this is, this is amazing that Brother Benson is so influential in Brother Cates, who is so influential in me. And then it crossed over from just motivation to passion, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. Then I couldn't stop. I found every single Google article that ever mentions Eris Benson's name. I found his family members, his only surviving family members that knew him. I talked to them. I invite, one of them lives in Montgomery. I'm going to go next week and have lunch with him. Um, let's see, what else did we do? We found, I found where his grave is. So while I'm in Montgomery, I'll probably swing by Tallahassee and look at his grave. It just, it, it snowballed into, I realized, oh, wait, at some point tonight, I need to get stuff ready for tomorrow morning. And I had to stop. That's what passion is. We're going to talk about passion this morning. In Revelation chapter 2, you have uh, the Ephesus Church of Christ. Verse number 1, Revelation chapter 2, verse number 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus... Right. The words of him who holds the seven lampstands in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you, for, you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, the Ephesus Church of Christ. Acts chapter 19. Open up there. You can put your ribbon in Revelation 2 if you'd like. Acts chapter 19, the Ephesus Church of Christ. Verse number 1, the congregation at Ephesus didn't start in the correct way. You read the book of Acts, you find churches being started in this manner. An apostle or some kind of uh, minister, preacher, evangelist goes to a new city He goes most likely to the synagogue because that's where the religious people were at the time. If there isn't a synagogue, chances are he probably goes to the place where the pagan worship is. Because for there to be a synagogue, there has to be ten Jewish families with men in them. Okay, So there has to be ten Jewish families with ten Jewish men in that family to have a synagogue. Well, if there's not a synagogue, that means that the The Jewish population is not large enough, and so they went to the pagan worship centers because that's where they were. So they go, and they go to the synagogue or the pagan worship center, 
and they start preaching. They convert some people, and then you'll see that usually around the time that the church is started, that minister, evangelist, preacher, apostle, if it is, leaves, goes to the next city. Ephesus starts like this, verse number one. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the, through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? Pause. Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit at all. And he said, well, then why were you baptized? That means that at the moment that they believed, they, bab- they were baptized. Belief is not separate from baptism. Belief is baptism. All right, now, he says, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. This is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had said had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. All right, so Ephesus doesn't start out normal. The church isn't founded by religious people who were at a synagogue. These people are already worshiping Jesus Christ. They're already claiming to follow Jesus Christ. But the problem is they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't understand what they were doing. They didn't have a knowledge of the Godhead before they were baptized. And so Paul converts them. He teaches them and baptizes them again. So the church doesn't start out normal. But then it doesn't continue normal. Because remember, Paul usually starts a congregation or the minister or evangelist starts the congregation. And then he hightails out of there to go to the next city so that he can do the same thing over again. It's just a rinse and repeat model. You go to a city, you convert some people, you teach them how to worship, and then you rinse and repeat. You go to the next city, you convert some people, you teach them how to worship, you go to the next place. And then along the way, if they have problems, you take care of those problems by writing letters. That's why we have the New Testament. But Paul in Ephesus doesn't work that way. Paul's the one that came up with that model, by the way. He's the one that came up with the idea that you you start the church, you helicopter in as it's called, you start it, and then you head out. And you let them make their own, their own culture within the church. They're doing the correct worship, but they, they decide some things by themselves without your influence. It's the way that many missionaries work today in the church. That being said, Paul doesn't do that in Ephesus. He stays. For whatever reason, Paul stays for three years in Ephesus teaching and preaching. He teaches in a school there as, a, as his profession, as his his vocation, as it were, but then he stays. So the church at Ephesus is not normal. It's not the usual church. Then go to the book of Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, rather. After Paul leaves, they don't necessarily have problems because they've had an apostle that has helped them and built them up for three years, and so they're, they're more mature. When you read the book of Ephesians, it's not... It's, it's not as condemning as most of the other books in the New Testament. I mean, Galatians starts out with, I can't believe that you've turned your back on Jesus Christ. You've fallen from grace. 
1 Corinthians starts off with, I can't believe that you are starting denominations in a congregation. You should know better than this. Who taught you? Ephesus is more gentle. One, because Paul knows the people there a little more. But two, they didn't have the same maturity level as the other churches. They're a little bit more mature. Now that being said, he does write this. Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before, beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, back up to Acts chapter 19. The church is so different in Acts 19 that it eventually gets to the point where they are converting so many people and having so much influence on the people around them and the city around them of Ephesus that a riot breaks out. And so they go into the, the amphitheater, the, the, they go into the convention center, as it were, and they're screaming, great is Diana, God of the Ephesians. Great is Diana, God of the Ephesians. Great is Diana, God of the Ephesians. Over and over, they're just chanting it over and over and over again because the Christians at Ephesus had been so influential in their city around them that they had caused more than a stir, they had caused a riot. What motivated them? What caused them to do it? I'm going to say that Ephesians chapter 2 is what does it. Grace. They're motivated by grace. They're motivated by an understanding that, that they were lost, now they're forgiven. And they're motivated by a deep understanding in the Scriptures. Because when you understand the Scriptures... Let's just take the act of becoming a Christian, for example. You hear it and you believe it. Once you believe the truth, once you know the Scriptures enough to believe it, you understand it, it pushes you to do something. Now, there are a couple motivating factors. One may be you just want to be with God for eternity. One of the factors, the motivating factors, may be you don't want to go to hell. I know that we shy away from that word so much. We shy away from from the concept of hell so much that we don't even like to say that. But one of the motivations for a person becoming a Christian may just be that they don't want to go to hell for all of eternity. That's a perfectly valid motivation. If someone obeys the gospel out of fear, it's okay. That's a good thing. That being said, that can't be the only motivation. Maybe they're motivated by just wanting to be with God for eternity. Maybe they're motivated by just wanting to please God. But something happens between Ephesians chapter 2 being written and Revelation chapter 2 being written to where now they've forgotten that motivation. They're still doing what's right, so they still have motivation. The, the interesting thing about, um, about motivation is that, well, you cannot care and still be motivated to do something. And that's what's happening in Ephesians chapter 2. So here's what I did this past week. I asked a question on Facebook and on Instagram and a couple other places. But I got my favorite answers from, from Facebook. And I didn't block out their names, okay? So don't 
Only one of them's in here. But don't be, you know, poking her, okay? All right, here's the first one. I said, what is the difference between motivation and passion? By the way, these people did not know that I was doing this. And by the way, all of the best answers were women. Go figure. Men just don't answer questions, I guess. All right, you ready? You may know her, Hannah Alexander. She was a member here for a long time. Having a passion for something implies that you already have a level of personal investment in whatever that is. Motivation to do something can be more of an appeal, an interest in something you may or may not already have a passion for. All right, this one. You may know her. Most of the time, you don't need motivation to do something you're passionate about. And this one. This is a friend of one of my wife, a wife of one of my friends. A friend of one of my wives. Motivation is a, re- is a reason for doing something. Passion is the reason you can do nothing else. In Revelation, they still have motivation. I mean, just go back and read it. Revelation chapter 2, verse number 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil. Why? What's their motivation? Maybe it's because they don't want to go to hell. And they don't want to, they don't want to be listening to people that may cause them to do that. And have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. You've abandoned the passion that you had. You still have motivation, but you don't have passion anymore. Here's the difference. Passion is from the Latin, or it's, it's a mixture between a Latin and a French word that means suffering. You've heard of the passion of the Christ? When I told somebody I was, I was preaching on passion, they said, oh, the passion of the Christ, are we just watching a movie? And I said, yeah, we're just going to watch a movie for a worship service. And, uh, and then I said, do you really think, one, that I would do that, and two, that I would get away with that? Anyways, so it's the, it's the old word for suffering, the passion of the Christ. We'll talk about that in just a second. Motivation is something that pushes you to do something. I am motivated I'm motivated to follow the speed limits in Columbus, Georgia. You know why? You know why I'm motivated to follow the speed limits of Columbus, Georgia? There are these things called police officers. And in Columbus, we have an entire group of police officers that that ride these really nice Harley-Davidson motorcycles. And you know what their job is? Their only job. They They don't go to car wrecks. They don't go to burglaries. They don't go to shootings. They don't go. Their only job is to write you a ticket. That's my motivation. I personally, I think speed limits need to be relative that you go and you get tested and they say, okay, you're a horrible driver. Your speed limit is 25 miles an hour. You're a good driver. Your speed limit is whatever your car can go. Anyways, but I'm motivated to do that. I'm motivated to not text while I drive in Columbus. You know why? Because there are these things called police officers. And sometimes they dress up as construction workers and stand on the side of the road and they write you tickets for texting while you're driving. I'm motivated to do that. But if you ask me about my passion, it would be, let's see how fast this Hyundai can really go. You can be motivated to do something and not be passionate about it. I'm not very passionate about driving 25 miles an hour on some of these streets. That being said... The difference between motivation and passion is passion is something you can't do without. Motivation is something 
that you know you have to do for one reason or another. Pride. Some people are motivated by pride. Some people are motivated to come to church by pride. They, they just, they know that everyone's looking, and so they're going to come. Some people are motivated by money or by greed. Money and greed are two different things. You may go to your job because you're motivated by money. doesn't mean you're greedy. It means you know that next week you're going to have to go to Walmart and buy some groceries. And you're going to need some money to do that. Otherwise, those things called police officers will come and give you a nice set of bracelets. Motivation and passion are not the same thing. And Ephesus had lost their passion while their motivation continued. So now let's look at the passion of the Christ. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, in your, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That, that means... He didn't think that holding on to his equality with God was worthy of not doing what he needed to do. Okay? That doesn't mean that God, or that Jesus didn't think he was God. Or that it was out of his reach to be like God. It means he wasn't going to hold on to his deity so much that what he needed to do was stopped. Because I'm God. And a creator doesn't die for his creation. So I'm going to hold on to this so tight that I can't let go. That's what the verse means. So, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that he didn't think equality with God was a thing to be held on to and grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form. He humbled himself and became, becoming obedient to, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Back up to verse number five. You have this word mind. Let this mind be in you. It's the, it's the Greek word phroneo. Phroneo is an interesting word. We've translated it mind. Because that's the best one-word answer that we can get. But the answer that, that, well, if I were going to translate it and not try to seek a word-for-word translation, I would say something like this. You need to allow yourself to think and to focus on something, on this thing that I'm about to talk about, on this thing, regardless of what it costs you. That's the word phroneo. To set your mind on something, regardless of what it costs you. That's passion. The old word for passion meant a suffering. Something that you were willing to do, regardless of whether or not you had to suffer for it. That's why Jesus going to the cross is called the passion of the Christ. The suffering of of the Christ. Because Ephesians chapter, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2. He didn't think it was a thing to be grasped. He wasn't going to hold on to his deity so much that it cost him 
the relationship that he wanted to have with his creation. And so the passion of the Christ came about. So let this passion be in you. Have this passion among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse number six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be something to be held on to. But how did he do this? How did, how did Jesus have this passion? Well, he was willing to die on the cross. So how do we do it? Look at verse number 12. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, uh, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. I guess it was 2003, and I was working for my neighbor in our neighborhood. She had a bunch of plants that she needed planting. I don't know why this memory sticks out above all the other memories. I used to mow yards when I was in middle school. You know, if you, most of y'all probably did that, men, right? You mow yards to make a little money because your parents won't buy you that new game you want. So I, I mowed yards and I worked in people's yards and I raked leaves and did all this other stuff. But I remember this one woman. I don't even remember her name, but I remember where she lived. I went over to her house and asked if she needed anything done in her yard. She said, yes. I need some flowers planted. And so she showed me where the flowers were. She showed me where the shovels were and all that stuff. And then she said, I need to go to the store. I'll be back in a few hours. Whenever you're done, I'll pay you. And so I thought, well, okay, I guess I'm working alone today. Most of the time they, you know, you're like 11 years old, 12, 13 years old. So most of the time, you're going to keep a good eye on the person working in your yard. But she just left me. And so I planted the flowers, and she came back. And she said, wow, you've done really, you have a good work ethic. And I thought, well, because, you're, you're, I mean, you're paying me. And I kind of want some money, so I'll do whatever it takes. I used to walk around my neighborhood selling drawings for 10 cents a piece. Drawings. Y'all ever seen me draw? They're horrible. But I'd make five or six dollars on drawings. Anyways, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Well, verse, verse 13, really. Well, 12 and 13. Somewhere around in there. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Have some work ethic. Verse number 12. Therefore, my beloved brethren, do this, what you've been doing, In my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You need to have some passion about it. You need to, your faith needs to have some work ethic. Hint, hint, man, what we were talking about before worship service. I told Forrest I wasn't going to preach on it. But just think about that for a second. You need to have some passion in your faith. You need to have some work ethic. If we're going to be Christians, we need to be able to stand up and say, I'm going to do whatever I'm asked to do. Now, do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, the story goes that when they were putting Christians to death in the, in the Circus Maximus, they would be singing praises while, the, while they were being put to death. I want you to shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation, in a twisted generation. What does that take? It takes passion. All right. I know that many of us are ex-military. We're, we're at least surrounded by military. You can't be in Columbus without it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I know we're flipping a lot today. I'm sorry about that, but it's okay. Philippians, or sorry, Ephesians chapter 6. Back to the book of Ephesians. So the Ephesians, when Paul's there, they have passion. When the book is written, they still have their passion. And somewhere, somewhere between that time and fast forward to when Jesus is telling John to write the book of Revelation, they have lost that passion. I just want to ask you a question. Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the devil, the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes on your, for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, and with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let me ask you a question. What does it take to run headfirst into a firefight? Does it take motivation? Motivation says, I'm going to stand right here until they get to me. Then I'm going to fight. Because I've been given a paycheck and a rifle. Passion says, I'm going to grab an extra rifle and I'm going to run straight for it. See, something happened between Ephesus getting the book of Ephesians to the book of Revelation. Whatever it was, it caused them to forget what they had at the beginning. What they had at the beginning was passion, not just motivation. They still had that in the book of, book of Revelation. They're still doing what's right, but not for the right reasons. It's time that, it's time that Christians have some passion in their faith. Have some work ethic. Be willing to suffer. Be willing to suffer. And take the motivation, whatever it is. I'm not going to ask you your motivation because it really doesn't apply to me. What is, but, but take your motivation for being a Christian. Maybe it's I don't want to go to hell. Maybe it's I just want to please God. Maybe it's I just want to be a good person. Or I want to... 
I, I, I'm reading a book right now where a man said he, he became a follower of God because he wanted to teach his child how to be a moral person. He said, I never grew up in, in church. I never grew up around religion. We were kind of agnostic growing up. But I, I had a son, and I realized that he is facing a world that is, is different than mine. And moral questions are harder now than they were back when I was growing up. And so I started going to church and reading the Bible because I wanted to be able to teach him some morality. Whatever your motivation is, I don't care. But take it and, and have some passion about it. To the point where it doesn't just become a motivation. I do this because I have to. It changes from, well, I have to go to worship tomorrow to if I don't go to worship tomorrow, my entire week is going to be ruined. That's the difference between motivation and passion. I have to go to church tomorrow means, well, if I don't, I'm going to be in trouble by someone or God. The second is, if I don't, I'm going to let myself down. That's what real passion is. That's what we need in our faith. If you need to become a Christian this morning, let me say this. I can motivate you all day long. I can tell you about all the horrible things that will happen to you if you die outside of Christ. I can tell you about the, the need that you have in this world for morals and for uh, biblical teachings and so forth. But the fact of the matter is that you're going to have to have some passion about it so that you can make the decision so that you're probably going to lose some things. When you become a Christian, you're probably going to lose some things. You're going to lose some of the things that you used to think were fun. You may lose family. You may lose friends. You may lose a job. That's why you have to, you have to be more than motivated to be a Christian. If you need to become a Christian this morning through baptism, we're going to stand and sing a psalm encouragement for you. And let us know why we do that.